This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with your host, Richard Dijkstra. Welcome, you're listening to Bell Media Podcast, where we take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. In this episode, I'm speaking to politician, writer and campaigner Peter Hayne. Brought up in South Africa by anti-apartheid activist parents, the family were eventually forced to move to London when he was 16 after continual harassment by the South African security forces. Peter first came to prominence as chair of the Stop the 70s tour. The apartheid-era South Africa regime took great pride from the perceived sporting successes of their whites-only sports teams, and they placed great importance on their sporting links with the outside world. Stop the Tour challenged this. The movement mobilised opposition that severely disrupted the South African rugby tour in the autumn of 1969, and finally forced the last-minute cancellation of the South African cricket tour of England the following summer, much to the fury of the South African government and most of the white minority population. It also partly paved the way for the further sporting isolation of South Africa with bans from the Olympics and the FIFA World Cup. Peter was then a leading young liberal, but he then switched to Labour in 1977. A passionate and committed politician, he's also someone who understands the opportunities, realities and limitations of power. He was first elected to the Commons as the MP for Neath in 1991 and served as a cabinet minister in a variety of roles under both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He stood down from being an MP in the 2015 general election after representing his constituents for 25 years and was appointed to the Lords the same year. As well as a politician, he's also a prolific author. I'm delighted to welcome Peter Hain. Thank you. Peter, your latest book, The Rhino Conspiracy, is mainly set in contemporary South Africa. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about it? Well, it's a combination of story about poaching and the outrageous poaching of rhinos in particular uh, for their horns, which are then transported normally to East Asia, especially to Vietnam and China and surrounding countries, and used, ground down often into powder, and used for all sorts of, in my view, obscene things like uh, aphrodisiacs allegedly, Uh, drugs as a cocaine substitute, uh, and a lot of money is paid for by the elites in these countries. And actually, at the end of it is the threat to the rhino as a species, because they have been poached and killed on a prodigious, almost industrial scale like elephants. So that's the heart of the story. But behind this poaching, are not just bad local poachers. They're often poor Africans who are used as and manipulated by organized crime, international syndicates, behind which often sit corrupt politicians and indeed government officials and ministers uh, and members of parliament. So my book um, set in contemporary South Africa, especially under the era of President Zuma, who was in power for seven years, and introduced massive corruption and cronyism uh, is a combination of the wildlife side of it, the horror of poaching and what it does to wild animals. These, in the case of rhinos, these regal uh, uh, animals that are chomping away on their grass and and leaves in perfect uh, 
symphony with the the world and then suddenly they're blown apart by a, by a poacher's rifle or, or AK-47. Uh, but behind that um, is this organized international network of crime and it's that fusion of the two that this thriller, and it is a thriller, uh, t- it tells a story of people trying to combat it both from both the wildlife and and also the the political activist end as well. I'm interested in the fact that you chose to write it as a thriller because clearly, obviously, as a politician, you've written a lot of political books. But in this situation, you're weaving the two together. Was there a particular reason why you chose it like that? Well, I read a lot of thrillers. Like I'm sports mad, so I often used to raise eyebrows when we gathered before cabinet meetings in 10 Downing Street by reading the sports pages of the newspapers before the news pages. And I thought, well, I'd like to try my hand at writing a thriller. I'd written, as you say, over 20 non-fiction books about various current affairs and politics issues and a biography published a few years ago uh, on his centenary of Nelson Mandela, a short readable biography. But I wanted to try my hand at um, writing a thriller and to try and make it PC, and I hope you found it so, uh, Richard, that, that, draw, that draws the reader in and takes you on this journey. I think it, it definitely does that. I think it's interesting too, the, the mix between the political position in South Africa at the moment, some of the back history that comes through, and then also the whole issue to do with uh, wildlife. I mean, again, I'm interested, you say that you wanted to write a thriller, but you focused there on rhino poaching. But as I say, there's a, clearly there's a lot of other issues to do with politics and all that kind of stuff. So what came first? Was it the idea of doing it on poaching, or was it the idea of doing it in contemporary South Africa? Well, they kind of merged together in my mind, because on the one hand, you had my wife and I's love of wildlife, and we'd been to this extraordinary jewel of a safari park called Tula Tula in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, inland and north of Durban. And we loved it so much and uh, there's a there's an interesting backstory to that. I don't know if you, as a, as a wildlife conservationist yourself, Richard, whether you've ever read um, Lawrence Anthony's The Elephant Whisperer, which is a terrific story about his relationship with what started off as a rogue elephant herd mm-hmm. and how he got to know them better and, and basically settled them down. And it's, it's about the Tula Tula Game Reserve. It's a gripping story. It's not fiction. It's about a, a factual account of his experience. Yeah. And it was visiting that and really understanding that story much better and uh, loving wildlife as I do, and then being horrified by what I saw under President Zuma's 10 years of rule of the betrayal of the, the Nelson Mandela legacy, his legacy of freedom and justice and integrity, above all integrity, and morality and equal opportunities for all. And that marvelous symbol of great leadership, which the world is, is badly lacking from at the moment, I might say, yes. that Nelson Mandela uh, gave uh, and became an iconic figure, probably the most worshipped political figure of our era, our generation. And to see that being betrayed by corrupt uh, ministers and the corrupt president and it infecting the whole of the system on the one hand Mm. and then trying to understand why rhino poaching was happening i mean i've just seen the news um from the congo that there's a 
a poacher who killed, I think, 500 elephants. And um, he's just been given an extensive jail sentence. And that's very unusual. Mm. It's very unusual for these poacher kings to actually be caught and jailed. And so, so that was the idea of bringing those two together that began to form in my mind. Interesting that in a way you were also inspired by hearing about the work of people who have then dedicated their lives to conservation. I mean, I think one of the things which was very inspiring in, in my life was actually meeting a guy called Ted Riley, who is the father of conservation in Swaziland, or now Eswatini is now, and hearing his story and also being with him and just seeing how dedicated he is to his animals, you know, that he would do anything to try to protect them, but also realising how he was having to battle corruption and all the issues that were going on there as well. So the story really resonated with me mm. on that, I must say. Mm. Oh, that, that's encouraging. And, and actually, as you'll know, having read the book, there are two characters, two wildlife rangers in the, uh, in the fictional game reserve called Zama Zama, uh, which means keep trying, keep striving, yeah. in, in the, in the, translated from the, the, the Zulu language. And they are dedicated, particularly one of the key figures, the characters that I talk about, who's based on a couple of rangers that, that I actually met. Uh, his name in the book is Isaac Mkisi, and he is dedicated to wildlife preservation and absolutely determined to do whatever it takes to protect the precious wildlife that he's uh, dedicated his, his life and his career to, yeah. to working with and protecting. Well, when I was staying with uh, Ted, you know, there were a lot of issues going on while we were there and we didn't quite understand exactly what was going on but it was all related into an incident about a year before where there had been a you know a, a shootout uh when they were trying to protect the animals and you know people had got killed and there was all sorts of issues around that and it really brought home to you the fact that you know it's a battle that's going on in some of these places it may look like a you know a nice tourist destination but it's uh there's a lot of issues around. Yes. I mean, I have an Kesey saying, uh, it's a war zone. This is a fight to the death. It's a fight to the death on the one hand for the species themselves. Yeah. I mean, elephants and, and rhinos are being shot on, a, on an industrial scale. But it is also a battle for life by the, by the rangers yeah. uh, who are, are being killed. Uh, and the poachers themselves are often killed. Because, as, as I said, they're poor Africans, often from the locality, who the, the hard end of a long chain that reaches right the way to um, Hanoi in Vietnam or, or Beijing in China. I suppose we shouldn't be completely pessimistic about all of this. I mean, one of the other things which, and why I've been involved to some extent in this is actually seeing that the way that tourism well organized has actually been able to bring a sort of an economic basis into that wildlife conservation which over the years i think has actually achieved quite a lot of lot of success there's obviously i have to say i've also seen some terrible examples where uh, you know people who really shouldn't have been involved had got involved because they saw it as a quick way of making money whereas it's something that you have to be dedicated to and that the the tourist revenues uh, really help your work rather than actually making you rich in terms of you know running a tourist experience. Yes, I mean the, I completely agree. And the rangers themselves and the owners um, very rarely make money 
they normally, you know, the owners are lucky to turn in a small profit in, for the most part. Yeah. But they do it because that's their lives. I mean, I, I try to convey this in, in the book, and you'll have seen it at first hand yourself as a much, a much greater knowledge than me. But um, it, it is that sheer dedication and passion, their passion for wildlife is also something that, you know, we are a terribly destructive, we're the most destructive species in the history of the world. In the history of the planet is humankind. And, you know, we have to take responsibility for this. And I suppose, you know, coming to this from a, a 50 years in politics and trying then to weave the story and understand better, and I don't consider myself a, a, an expert conservationist as, as you are in any way, or somebody like Lawrence Anthony, the late Lawrence Anthony was, or, or these rangers that I described. There's a, there's a fantastic book that I drew upon in my research from by Julian Radomir called Killing for Profit. I'm not sure if you've come across it, but it is a really disturbing account and a definitive account of how this attempt to wipe out species just to make to make money. One of the things I was going to say that I think that your description of being in the wildlife reserves, I really liked that there was the evocative of the experience. But also uh, when you talk about what's actually happening during the instance of poaching, I mean, you, it's quite gruesome, the, your descriptions there as well. So I think you, you really bring in the kind of two, uh, two sides of that. The other thing that I thought I would also talk about, though, is that clearly one of the things which really comes through in the book is your your deep love of South Africa and, as you're talking about, the legacy of Nelson Mandela. One of your key characters is a young activist who used the term, you know, it was born free. But also what you're suggesting within her character and how she's reacting to the the, the veteran from the, the struggle is that there is a lack of knowledge in that generation about the the struggles of the past and that your your book i think starts to you know bring forward some of that history which i thought, thought was interesting would you like to talk a little more about that yes uh, with pleasure the, the character you're talking about the young woman uh, black woman tandi majeka is um, a very independent young woman very different from her peers who are more into their smartphones and worshipping celebrity and so on. And she's passionate about what's happening to her country. And I based her, I mean, she's an entirely fictional character, but I have her the granddaughter of a maid uh, that we became very, very close and friendly with as a white South African family when I was growing up called Eva Majeka. Uh, and she was our maid in Pretoria. And when I say maid, most white families had uh, had maids, African women, who cleaned and cooked very often and sometimes looked after young children as well. And most did not form the close bond of friendship and uh, equality that, that Eva did with my parents because of their anti-apartheid activism. So, so Tundi, who I describe as a born free, because she was born, it's a term given to those born after apartheid had been ended and Nelson Mandela had come to power in 1994, and there's a lot of them, they account for getting on for half of the population, is uh, somebody who understands her history because I've had her talking to her grandmother 
And some of the experiences that she heard are actually experiences that our family, that my parents went through and that I observed as their son, and I'm proud to be their son, and some of the other characters as well. But I, I hope Tundi conveys a rather feisty, independent young woman who is determined to try and rescue the Mandela legacy and restore some of the values that he epitomized. And her relationship with the character I call the veteran, who is based on on somebody real again, uh, but was a freedom fighter in exile. And a lot of the experiences that he talks about and the wisdom that he conveys to her and the advice he gives her because he recruits her as a protege. He needs somebody younger and more energetic. He's getting old and a little um, out of breath and uh, and lacking the kind of his former ability to keep driving on. And I hope their relationship, purely, by the way, I should say proper platonic relationship, um, but based on her learning from him and him encouraging her and uh, her sort of being independently minded and a bit impulsive and he's saying, trying to rein her in and, and steady her down and uh, uh, in a way that uh, ultimately proves successful for what their cause is. <laughs> but you're not supposed to say that yet, are you really? <laughs> give, give that away. Uh, one of the things, though, that... Uh, I was also interested in was that there's a bit of the book where you reference the London recruits. Yes. And as it happens, I actually know one of the recruits, uh-huh. a guy called Tom Bell. Yeah. That, uh, And I was at the launch of their book a few years ago when they talked about their experiences, their secret exploits uh, eventually becoming uh, known. Perhaps you'd like to talk a little bit about the role in real life. I think that's an interesting issue anyway but also why you felt that it was a good idea to include them in the story. Well, the veteran, and I I have him having recruited the London recruits, young activists on the left of British politics, very much on the left of British politics, involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. This would have been the 1960s? This would have been the late 1960s and early 1970s, through the 1970s. And they were people who took a lot of risks. They went to South Africa as normal tourists, visitors, but they had suitcases of leaflets that exploded, showering leaflets of resistance to apartheid, what I regard as the most evil system of racism ever in the history of the world. It penetrated in every aspect of every life, from sport, as you mentioned before, right the way through to preventing preventing marriage and dividing people into the schools they could and couldn't go to according to the colour of their skin and accident of birth. And those uh, young activists from London, uh, mostly, who came to be known as the London recruits, I knew nothing about them, by the way, and nor does anybody else. It was kept a secret until pretty well the time of the publication of the book. One of the things, as I understand it, was that their sort of activism was at a time when uh, the ANC and other movements had effectively been almost totally suppressed. Yes. And there really, there was nothing going on as far as the population was concerned, that, you know, apartheid regime had actually got complete control. Exactly. This was a time when Nelson Mandela and his leadership comrades had been dispatched to Robben Island, in his case, serving 
the first 10 years of his uh, 27 years in prison, along with his Walter Sasuba and Governor Berkey and Ahmed Kathrada and Andrew Mungeni and, and others. And um, the veteran uh, recruited these London recruits. And, and I mentioned them because one of the things he had to be very, very careful about was that they were people he could trust because the security forces of South Africa, with the help of the British security forces and the right-wing activists in Britain, had infiltrated the anti-apartheid movements. And he had to be sure that these people could be trusted to be sent on these secret missions into South Africa, which they did with great bravery, risking arrest, possible death. And uh, he sort of uses some of those techniques to test Tundi out when she first meets him and offers to help to just check that she's genuine, she wasn't some kind of informer because he was already outspokenly critical of the corruption of the regime. So that period was very important for that sort of activism, as it was for the campaign that I found myself leading, as you mentioned, to stop the 70 cricket tour of direct action, pitch invasions and laying siege, nonviolent direct action to physically disrupt the matches because the international campaign became the focus with the internal resistance to apartheid closed down. The international campaign became important, whether that was grannies refusing to buy South African oranges or whether it was um, the London recruits or the direct action campaign of the Stop the Tour movement or the anti-apartheid movement, the most successful of all the international movements, the British anti-apartheid movement. Those, those campaigns were very critical in keeping the flame of freedom alight. And indeed, um, Nelson Mandela told me when I first met him after he came out of prison, and I met him in 1991 in Parliament, and he told me that actually the news of our Stop the Tour protests had penetrated through into his a Robben Island cell because his warders were fanatical Springbok rugby fans mm, yes, and right. took it out, their vengeance on him, not realising, because he knew nothing about this. There was a news blackout at that time. So I now have to have my sort of uh, moment of truth and reconciliation uh, to say that I was actually at the Scotland-South Africa game as a 13-year-old. Uh, I, I have been I have been taken there, so I might have seen I might have seen you in action. <laughs> I, I'll acquit you as a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> I was debating whether I should mention it or not. Why not? A lot a lot of people were just like you at that age, just rugby fans. They didn't understand what we were doing, but you know why we were doing what we were doing was because um, racist politics infected every nook and cranny of sport. You yeah. couldn't play if you were the wrong colour. Yes, and I, mean, I think that one of the things which is also an issue with all these things is that people's focus on what's happening internationally is, is quite narrow. So, you know, it was also something that was started to draw attention to things that they didn't really pay any attention to normally at all. So I can, yes. see, the, I can see the, the whole and, issue. And people that. see sport in a sort of hermetically sealed world of its own. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we've recently had the Black Lives Matter uh, issue, a very important issue for our age, uh, surfacing within sport as, as especially black sports uh, footballers like, for example, Raheem Sterling uh, have spoken out, Marcus Ratchford and, and others have spoken out uh, in a way that they didn't before. Uh, maybe only Megan Rapinoe, the, the captain of the American women's football team, has been as outspoken. So I think 
it was very difficult for sports fans to understand, and they hated us, what we were doing in Britain, as well as they hated me for what we were doing uh, among white South Africans, hated me. Actually, there is one bit of the book that you mentioned, and I just have to ask you again on that, because it's just as a small instant. But is that correct, that in the cricket tour that you had the team super glued into their rooms? Yes, it was actually the Springbok rugby tour. Oh, it was the rugby in tour. In the Park Lane Hotel uh, before the match against England in December 1969. And we booked a, a young, uh, a vivacious young woman activist into the hotel. She uh, made friends with the Springboks and then discovered where they were all billeted, the rooms that they were in, and went round in the early hours of the morning injecting solidifying agents into their door locks so that they couldn't get out of their doors without breaking them down to, to come down for breakfast right. and prepare for the match, which they lost, <laughs> maybe because of that, against England. Yeah. And then somebody else um, hijacked the, their coach and drove it off and crashed it with half of the team inside. So. By the time they arrived at the match, they were not well prepared. The book comes through. That there's a kind of your admiration for Nelson Mandela that you've mentioned before, you know, guiding South Africa through what could have been a period of great strife and things. But clearly also a lot of the book is directed to the fact of this legacy that you think has actually been, I don't know, subverted, I suppose. So... Is there a view that what you're saying here is generally understood and the things are being done to change things there? Well, President Zuma's rule was particularly poisonous for that decade of power before he was ousted by a new president for the last two years or so, President Cyril Ramaphosa, who is in the Nelson Mandela tradition, shares his values and indeed was his preferred successor, Mandela's preferred successor. So He's been trying to tackle this corruption, but it is, you know, corruption, when it gets into any system of politics, and uh, there's lots of countries in Europe, Russia, Asia, not just throughout Africa, uh, that have been deeply corrupted. But it's like a cancer, and, and I kind of try to convey this in the book. It's very difficult to deal with it once it's set into the body, uh, in this case, the body politic and the body government. And almost what's worse about it is, um, as I think comes through in the book, is that cronyism, appointing all your friends, regardless of whether they're capable. Mm. In one case, Zuma appointed a, um, as the chair of the South African Airways, a former deputy head teacher who'd born one of his many children, one of his many lovers. She had no experience of running airways, and it's not surprising that it was soon bankrupt. So, um, yeah, I think the... The, the political corruption, which then comes full circle back into being behind the wildlife, uh, the threat to wildlife um, and whole species like rhinos, is, is it's, it's a circle. One of the parts of the book where I thought was interesting, just as, a, again, a, the kind of detail that you go into, which helps explain a lot of what's happened to the various characters and how uh, things have developed in South Africa, is the senior judge then flashing back to his childhood when he's been charged with subversion, because I think at the age of 10 or whatever, he'd been involved in a demonstration, and how there is one single white woman in the court who seems to be trying to offer some support. And that seems to be an interesting little touch that you've added there, and I just wondered if there was a reason for that. 
There was, because it was my mother in real life, uh, Adeline Hayden. Uh, and there was this 15-year-old boy in short pants, black youngster, who'd been on a protest against apartheid with his fellow activists and had not done anything violent and found himself uh, in court and uh, dispatched to Robben Island for 10 years. So that is based on a, a real figure, and that story is true. There are a number of other parts, in fact, quite a lot of the characters are based on true characters. I'll make it clear they are, they are fictional, but the stories are based on truth. And, and that's another reason why I think that the thriller format is a better way to tell, I hope you agree, uh, to tell a story of real life, but in terms that can engage and that readers can find the pages being turned in, in front of them as they, they follow the, the story through. Yes, I mean, I would say that the, the book is really doing three or four different things at the same time. You know, that it is to do with the whole issues to do with conservation and poaching. It's a thriller, political primer. And also it's a historic account of what was actually one of the seminal parts of the history of the last century, really, as well. So we've talked a lot about rhinos and you know how they're threatened and what's happening in, in Africa. But of course, I, I know that you've also travelled extensively, partly obviously when you were uh, foreign minister. And I know that, for instance, you've seen tigers in the wild. And I just thought that it would be interesting to see if you had any views of how things are different in the, uh, the two countries and just generally what your experience was when you were in India. I had an absolutely amazing experience and such a privilege of witnessing a tigress in full flower coming out of the bushes from a pool where she'd been drinking and drank regularly, having tracked her with some professional trackers in Brantenburg and seeing her coming out of the bushes and walking right past me. And I've got a beautiful, majestic photo of her. I could almost have patted her on the back from the, the, the cruiser, the land cruiser that we were uh, on the back of. I don't think that would have been very wise. <laughs> if she was so close, yes. just no, uninterested in us, as wildlife is, if you're in a land cruiser, if you'd been on the ground, then you'd have been a threat. Mm. But that just brought home to me in a different way, in an entirely different country when I was foreign minister, and I took a day out from normally packed visits a day in advance. I treated myself to an invitation to go up to Randombo on, on an Indian train about five, six hours journey, and then back to Delhi afterwards. And uh, it was a magical experience and just made me realize that um, you know wildlife is threatened as tigers are, mm. not just on the African continent where the biggest prevalence of them is, uh, but in, in Asia as well. Well, I have to say I envy you that you're uh, sort of one day going to a tiger park and you got a sighting like that. I have to say that I was in five separate parks over an extended period before I finally saw a tiger. But that time it was dusk and uh, the photograph I have is one that is not particularly... Uh, well, the, actually, the photograph I have is one that I use when I go around schools talking to children about my, my own books because they're linked into conservation 
uh, as well. But I try to to show them that actually this tiger, that sighting inspired me to write the books because, as you said, it's a kind of it's a magical experience. And I think one of the things which is interesting in all of this is that when people get to see wildlife in the wild they really do connect in a in a different way than they probably possibly could have ever imagined i completely agree i was very lucky i had the the top um trackers and rangers of rantham look after me as a visiting foreign minister and very keen to find this tiger for me and we <laughs> we, we slept in tents just outside the park the night before and had a barbecue and then early in the morning i think we went in at about five o'clock and we tracked them we were driving around for a good couple of hours and finally they spotted puck marks the tiger's paws in in a track um, and then followed it and they knew about the drinking pool and that that might be where she was and indeed we drove right up and then looked down and saw her her drinking and then we raced back down in a frenzy to try and find her walking out of the bush and we're just very lucky to do so and it did it did uh, along with other safari experiences that i had in south africa and indeed in kenya reinforced my desire to make a success of this book the rhino conspiracy uh, the other thing i would just say about wildlife tourism like that is that Ranthambore is an interesting case, I think, because it is one of the places that people have tended to go to. And actually, the the number of tigers has actually increased many times in Ranthambore. And it's actually, to a large extent, seen by the fact that the attention that is brought by tourists into what's going on in these areas, you know, helps improve the whole conservation effort, I think, as well. It does, and and as you'll know uh, better than I do, it's the income that then gives employment to local people that means they are less enticed to to get income when they're desperate from poaching. Um, And they can see that tigers are not a threat to them because sometimes with wildlife, as you'll know, uh, it's a problem of elephants in particular, but tigers and lions too, Mm. where they, they need more space if they are growing in numbers, they start encroaching on local human communities and that then breeds antagonism from the communities and you then get into a battle between the species for survival. So the if you have successful safari parks with foreign tourists paying you know good money to come and, and keep them, you, you actually create an economic basis for an alternative future for those people. Yeah. And in fact, certainly in India, one of the interesting things is that uh, the the local tourist revenues are probably now outstripping the international. Interesting. Which is a, uh, which again is I think a good thing. That's not yet happened in Africa. No, I'm afraid. no. It, it's still, you know, safari park visitors in Africa are overwhelmingly white from Europe and the US. Yes, and, and uh, to some extent, that probably is a source of resentment on things. I think both India and Africa can learn from each other as how these things have developed. I think India was rather loath to go around the tourism route at all. In fact, at one point in probably, I don't know, the, not long after you were there perhaps, uh, that tourism was actually banned for a while completely, that they had somebody had managed to get the high court to declare that the kind of inviolate nature of a uh, national park meant that no one 
was allowed into it, which was basically stopped tourism completely for about a year. But it's now come back and they're gradually, I think, seeing that what's happened in Africa, you know, where like the Krugers, but at least double the size that it used to be where, as the actual national park itself. It's been great to have you on this podcast. So uh, thank you so much for being my guest on Books and Stories. The Rhino Conspiracy, I should just say, is out on the 10th of September. It's published by Muswell Press. And also, I think, Peter, you're on a panel dealing with issues raised in the book hosted by Save the Rhino on the 3rd of September. I am. And, and Richard, thank you. It's been a great privilege to talk to you personally uh, with your own experience uh, and passion about wildlife, but also to take part in this show. But yes, Save the Rhino have um, been very keen to make sure that their cause, which I passionately believe in, the charity Save the Rhino, great campaigning organization, uh, has got together to stage an event on the 3rd of September uh, to interview me and have their supporters uh, engage in the whole debate that I hope that I can bring to a much wider audience beyond wildlife enthusiasts to understand what is going on in our world at the moment uh, uh, to wildlife and on what I'm afraid are the killing fields of Africa uh, as the species of especially elephant and rhino, but others as well are threatened by this rapacious, obscene determination of human beings to just indulge in their own personal nefarious practices at the expense of, of the species of our, our lives and, and the planet, ultimately. So details of that event are actually, I think, on their website, which is www.savetherhino, that's all one word, .org. And we'll also put links on with the podcast information. So again, thank you for being such a great guest. It's such fascinating and important subjects. And also, uh, thank you for listening to Bell Books and Stories. The studio production here was by Wilfredo Acosta and Richard Dijkstra. I should also just say there are lots of interesting other podcasts in the series that Kay has been talking to Stuart Cosgrove about his new book, Cassius X. And I've been talking with George Logan, photographer who's been working with Born Free on a forthcoming collaboration about lines. It's a book called Lines, Pride Before the Fall. And also Kay was talking to Kate Sinclair about how books end up going on the screen. Uh, she's talking particular about the discovery of the book that became Slumdog Millionaire. So I hope you've enjoyed this listening and please join me next time. In the meantime, bye for now. <laughs>